Well, it's a great joy to be with you this morning, brothers and sisters. It's been a real pleasure to uh, get to know uh, many of you, and uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for the time we've already spent together at the, the Nine Marks Conference this weekend, and so thankful to be able to bring uh, God's Word this morning. Uh, last time I was here, it was very early in March uh, 2020, so I just wonder if anything interesting happened after I left. Uh, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow, Lord willing, and going home, so if like half the city of Portland gets swallowed by an earthquake this coming week, I promise to never come back because it's obviously uh, a me problem, but uh, I'm glad you, uh, you invited me back. Um, I want to start this morning with a question, and that is, wouldn't it be amazing to see God? Wouldn't it be wonderful to be in God's presence? For centuries of Western thought, uh, for centuries of the Christian uh, theological tradition, that was the highest goal towards which anyone could strive. So if you're familiar, all of Dante's Divine Comedy uh, moves toward a final vision of God in his love and beauty. So after Dante travels through the... uh, fictitious horrors of the inferno, and then goes through the purgatory, he finally beholds God and he calls him the love that moves the sun and the other stars. T.S. Eliot said that Dante's words were the highest point that poetry has ever reached or ever can reach. And I'm certainly not in a position to argue with him. I think Dante was onto something there. There is a longing deep in the human heart to be in the presence of God and to behold his perfection. I think that makes sense from what the Bible tells us. According to the Bible, Adam and Eve, the first humans, were created to live in an immediate relationship with their creator. So in the Psalms, David prays, as for me. I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Maybe you remember the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5 promised this greatest reward uh, for some people. He said, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. There's something in us that was made to live in the presence of God, to see him as he is. But there's another side to the story. When Adam and Eve, the first humans, rebelled against God, one of the consequences of their sin was that they were removed from his presence. They were no longer able to be in that kind of direct face-to-face relationship with God anymore. That's both because they're now morally and spiritually unworthy, right? They're not qualified to be in the presence of God, but also for their own safety. It's not safe for sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God. So we read in Genesis chapter 3 that a flaming sword was placed at the entrance of the garden after Adam and Eve had been expelled so that they couldn't return for their sake, for their safety. But you know, as the storyline of the Bible continues on, there, there are times when we see people, human beings, having a kind of experience with the presence of God. And it's interesting to see how they react. So in the days of Moses, God met with his people at Mount Sinai. 
And in Exodus chapter 19, the Lord descends on the mountain in fire and he warns the people, don't come near or else you'll die. The mountain is consumed in smoke and thunder and blasts of trumpets. And the people beg Moses to go and speak to the Lord on their behalf. They were completely terrified. In Isaiah 6, the prophet has a vision of the Lord in in his temple, surrounded by angels, praising his holiness. And it's interesting, Isaiah's response is not like that of Dante. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. It says, "I, I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. Isaiah did not enjoy his experience of seeing the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 1 records a vision that the prophet had of God's glory. And at the very end of the chapter, he summarizes it this way. He says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Just the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God was enough to make Ezekiel fall down flat. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus performs a miracle where he loads his disciples' nets with fish. And and you'd think they'd be very grateful. But in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, we read when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In each one of those cases... The power, the grandeur, the majesty, the, the, the holiness of God makes sinful people unable to bear being in His presence. They have moments of sort of personal disintegration, right? Isaiah says, I'm undone, I'm unraveled, I'm unspooled. Ezekiel falls down on his face. Peter says, get away from me, I'm sinful. So you have this tension in the Bible. Between the idea that the most wonderful thing you could possibly ever experience, the thing you were created for, is to see your God, your creator, in his beauty, face to face. And on the other hand, this idea that actually seeing him is horrible and unbearable for sinful people. Well, this morning I want to consider with you the the very end of the tiny book of Jude in the New Testament. And... And in our passage for this morning, we're going to see how this tension between a, a longing to see God's face and the, and the terror of God's presence for sinners, we're going to see how this tension gets resolved. And at the risk of spoiling the ending, we're going to see the solution is found in God himself. Now, before we read the passage, let me just get you up to speed um, with the, the little letter of Jude. Right? We need to know the passage we're, we're looking at this morning in its context. Uh, Jude was written to a church that had been infiltrated by false teachers. Jude calls them certain people who had crept in unnoticed. He says they were teaching the church that God's grace and his forgiveness meant that you could live any way that you wanted to live. These false teachers were promoting immorality and license in the church. And so at the very beginning of Jude, we, we see that he wants the believers in the church to He says, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude wants the church to labor diligently to make sure that they held on to the the good news about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. 
he warns his readers about the judgment of God against sin. He warns them about what happens to people who rebel against the Lord. And he urges the recipients of this little letter to keep themselves in the love of God. And so with that said, by way of uh, introduction, let's, let's look at the little conclusion of Jude's letter here in Jude, verse 24 and 25. Let me read this to you. Jude 24 and 25. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, as we consider these verses, you can see that Jude is telling us something about God here at the very beginning of our passage. He says that he's talking, um, actually in verse 25, he says that he's talking about uh, God, our Savior, the only God, our Savior. And he tells us something very important about our God there at the beginning of the passage. You see that he says that he is able He says that God is able. There's something that it seems Jude's readers were were nervous about. That perhaps they were worried that God couldn't or wouldn't do something for them. And so Jude concludes his little letter by reminding them and praising God because he is, in fact, able. So what is God able to do? Well, in this passage, we see two things. First, Jude says he's able to keep you from stumbling. There at the very beginning of verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. In the context of Jude's larger letter, you can understand why this is so important. Jude is warning the church against these these lethal false teachers, and he's telling them that that these false teachers represent a a clear and present danger to their spiritual well-being. In verse 12 of Jude, he, he calls them hidden reefs at their love feasts. Right there, there's something that you can shipwreck yourself on. In verse four, he says that they're they're designated for condemnation. These false teachers, and they threaten to lead other people into condemnation with them. Uh, Jude, in his little letter, compares them to famous spiritual disasters from the Old Testament. In verse eleven, he compares them to Cain, to Balaam, to Korah. In verse seven, he he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so there's a very real danger here. If you step back for a second, you see in the Bible that the Christian life is often conceived of as a journey with a fixed destination. So maybe you remember in Matthew chapter 7 where the Lord Jesus talks in terms of paths. He says that we're all on a path. There is a, a broad, easy path that leads to destruction And Jesus says there's a narrow, hard path that leads to life. Your life is a path with a destination. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul tells the church to so run that you may obtain the prize. Paul's conceiving of the Christian life as as an endurance race. So in 2 Timothy 4, he reflects on the very ending of his own life. He says, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, 
but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, brothers and sisters, we are all on a journey that ends either at our death or at the the return of the Lord Jesus, whichever happens first. And our goal is to get to the finish line. The goal is for us to so live our lives that we, like Paul, can finish our race. We can make it across the finish line faithfully. We can receive the, the gracious reward of our God. But not everyone who starts out well ultimately makes it. That's the danger. So Paul talks about those who have made shipwreck of their faith. In 1 John, the apostle speaks of those who went out from us and thereby revealed that they weren't really followers of Christ. Hebrews 10 talks about those who shrink back and are destroyed. Let's face it. Every church sees people drop out over time. You see people who seemed energetic and committed as followers of Jesus. But then one day they just walk away from him. You see them give their lives over to certain sins or to unbelief or to false teaching or simply to the cares of the world. This is a very real danger. Much of the book of Hebrews is written to warn Christians against this danger. And so Jude has been writing to help prevent his readers... That includes us from getting tripped up by these false teachers. Jude wants to help us avoid shipwrecking our faith. He doesn't want us to end up under the judgment of God like Balaam and Cain and Korah in the Old Testament. And so he tells the church, contend for the faith, because that's the only place where salvation can be found. He tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God, because to persevere in the faith requires our effort and engagement. But here at the very end, Jude gives us another angle on our perseverance in the faith. Jude wants us to know something that's going to help us move forward confidently as we seek to run our race. He says, God is able to keep you from stumbling. God is able to keep you from stumbling on your path. In verse 21, Jude tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God. And he uses a word there that has the sense of of watching over something carefully. It means to give careful, patient attention. And so Jude says, look, you have a responsibility. Keep yourself. Watch over your own soul to stay in the love of God. But that's not how he finishes his letter. That's not all that he says. Here in verse 24, he tells us that God is able to keep us. He's able to keep us from stumbling. He actually uses a different word there for keep. This word has the sense of guarding, of, of protecting something. And brothers and sisters, if you understand what Jude is saying here in verse 24, it, it will feel like fresh air in the room to you. Because if you know yourself very well, you know that if it depends on you, if what ultimately matters is your effort and your will, and your discipline, and your self-control, if that's what's going to keep you in the faith in the end, if that's all that you have, you're not going to make it. And neither am I. Our ultimate confidence is never in our own ability to persevere in the faith, but rather in the fact that we have a Heavenly Father who is able to keep us from stumbling. He's the one who's able to protect us and keep us 
Right? That's why we have a song in our bulletin this morning. Right? It's not, I will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. That's our hope. This is the truth that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 10 when he speaks of his disciples. He says, my father who has given them to me, listen, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. You see, Jesus is is thinking the same thing that Jude is saying. God is able, he says. He doesn't lack the power. No one is able to, to take us away from God. Jesus says, and he doesn't lack the motivation to keep us in his love. Jesus tells us there that God can and will hold us fast. And that leads us naturally then into the second thing that Jude says that God is able to do. That is, he is able to present us before the presence of his glory. Again, you see that there in verse 24. He's able to present us before the presence of his glory. Now, What is his glory? What is God's glory? Broadly speaking, the Bible uses that term, speaking of God's glory, in two ways. In in one sense, maybe the way we're most familiar, uh, it's it's synonymous with God's honor, his his reputation. Right? The, The Bible speaks often of God doing things for his own glory, right? To show his greatness. But, but there's another sense in which the Bible uses this word glory, talking about God, and that is to describe the, the brilliant light that shines around God's presence. There are times when God reveals himself in the Bible, and when he appears, there is an incredible light. Right? And that light, that, that shining that comes with his presence, uh, the Bible sometimes calls his glory. Right? It's, a, it's a way of communicating holiness and perfection, and beauty. So if you remember in Luke chapter 2, the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds to tell them of Jesus' birth. And we read there in Luke 2 that the glory of the Lord shone all around them. Right in Revelation 21, verse 23, we see that in the heavenly city there is no need for sun or moon because the glory of God will serve as light for his people. So when Jude talks about being in in the presence of God's glory, he's talking about seeing God in the most complete way that we can as creatures. Brothers and sisters, that's it. That's the prize. That's, That's the gift at the end of the finish line. That's what you get when you finish your race. This is the unfading crown of glory that that Peter talks about in first Peter five. This is the imperishable victory wreath given to faithful runners, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Right? This is the vision of God that Jesus promised to the pure in heart. It's all wrapped up in this idea, what, what Jude describes here as being presented before his glory, being in the presence of his glory. Friends, think about it. In God's presence, there's no sickness. There is no sorrow. There's no sin. In God's presence, everything is the way it should be. Everything is made right. Everything is good and holy. In God's presence, every longing that can't be satisfied here on earth is met and filled with the goodness and beauty of God. To be in the presence of God's glory is to have all of life's trials and tears and temptations wiped away. 
Think for a second. Think about the most wonderful, the most awe-inspiring, the most breathtaking place you've ever been. The most amazing sight you've ever seen. Maybe it's the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. Recently, uh, I had the, the joy of taking a trip just in January to the Dominican Republic. I'd never been there before. And, and one day uh, in the afternoon, late in the afternoon, we were, we were swimming uh, on the beach. It was just, I was there with uh, my wife and, and four good friends. And it was just six of us on this sort of secluded beach with mountains sort of jutting out on, on either side. And it was, just, it was just glorious and beautiful. And we were swimming at the waters of the Caribbean. I don't, I don't know how to describe it exactly, it's, but you, you have the sense that you're swimming in a melted jewel, right? It's just that it's this bright blue green that doesn't exist anywhere that I've ever seen except like on, in jewelry. You feel like you're in liquid like jello or something like that. It's, just, it's incredible. And then it was towards the end of the day and the sun was starting to go down and suddenly the waves got really intense. It had been pretty calm all day. And the waves got really intense to the point where, like, even though we're pretty fairly comfortable swimmers, it was like, we should probably get out now. And, and suddenly these waves started rolling in as the sun went down, like 10, 12 feet high, just barely off the beach. And the water is so crystal clear that it's like you can see through it somehow. And, and suddenly, just as the light was going down, and these huge waves were rolling in, just when the wave would start to peak, there would just be this electric blue that just for a second shot through the top of the wave. And you could just see it as the light hit it perfectly. And then as the wave would crash, the, the mist would kick up and, it, and this giant rainbow would be left behind. I don't know how to describe it and I don't, I, I don't want to read too much into it, but it felt like God kicked us out of the water and put on a show. Right, we, just, we sat in silence well after it got dark. And, and we walked away and later we were like, did that happen? Did we, did we really see that? It was just, it was unbelievable. It was breathtaking. Well, think about the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Think about the most wonderful piece of art that you've ever beheld. Uh, think, of, think of the most powerful music you've ever heard. Uh, the most exciting sporting event you've ever seen. The most captivating piece of theater. Think about the way that, that those things took you beyond yourself and made you sense the reality of something far greater than just the stuff that's in your normal day. Now, friends, realize that, that all of those things, those, those ten-foot waves in the Caribbean, right, the most wonderful sonata you've ever heard, the most beautiful piece of art, just, just think for a second about the fact that those things are only tiny derivative splinters of the beauty and the power and the glory and the majesty of the one who created them. Friends, standing in the presence of God's glory will be far greater than the most skillful poet could ever describe. It, it will be far more wonderful than, than the best musician could ever point us towards. It was something far beyond what even the most skillful artist could ever capture. No wonder Jude says there that we'll, we'll be in his presence with great joy. To be in the presence of God's glory is to be overwhelmed with his goodness and beauty. Friend, doesn't your soul long for that? But there's a problem. How can we be in God's presence with great joy? Here in verse 24, that him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless 
before the presence of his glory with great joy. How how can that be? As we saw earlier, when sinful people stand in anything approaching the presence of God, they come undone. Right? The experience of the Israelites at Sinai, the experience of Isaiah in the temple, the experience of Ezekiel and Peter could not be described as great joy. Right? It was more like personal trauma. So how can it be that Jude's telling us here that we will one day stand in the presence of his glory with great joy? I think he tells us there in verse 24. He's able to present us what? Blameless before the presence of his glory. That is to say, brothers and sisters, God is able to keep us from stumbling and to so cleanse us that we will be able to stand before him on the last day without any fault whatsoever. We can only imagine what that will be like to be completely blameless, to be morally pure, utterly righteous. Right? Again, it's one of the things we, we desire most of all in the world. Our society, we don't, we don't really know what to do with guilt, do we? We've, we've sort of tried to do a whole bunch of different things to deal with a, a sense of guilt. We've tried to redefine right and wrong so that the things that make me feel guilty are now things that I can take pride in. We've tried to set ourselves adrift from moral standards that, that make me feel like I've done something wrong. But it turns out it doesn't really work very well. There is something of the image of God in all of us. Our conscience uh, condemns us. We, we know that we haven't met our own standards, let alone the standards of our Creator. And so we all walk around with a sense of guilt. Guilt for the things we've done. Guilt for the things we've failed to do. Guilt for the ways we've failed people around us. The ways we haven't met our own standards. Just, just think about being a parent. If you've had the opportunity to have children. So I have five children. Four of them are teenagers at this moment. Right? And the only people I know who feel good about themselves as parents are the early 20-somethings in my church who don't have kids yet. Right? <laughs> they know what they're doing. They've got advice and suggestions. They know what catechisms they're going to use with their kids. They know right when to start teaching them baby Latin. Right? They've got it all figured out. But over the course of my almost 17 years as a pastor, I've had the joy of watching people get married and have children. And then you can see it in their eyes. Right? What usually happens when they have two kids in diapers at the same time. Right? They've joined the club. They're parents now. Right? To be a parent is to fail your children on some level. Right? Even the best of parents have plenty of fuel for guilt if they want to. Right? To be a husband is to fail your wife. To be a pastor is to fail my church. To be a child is to let your parents down. Right? We could keep going. I don't want to harsh the buzz here. Right? Just heaping up things and relationships that you could feel guilty and condemned for. But friends, I have such good news for you this morning. Especially if you're here and you feel condemned or guilty. The good news, according to Jude, is that that, that sense of guilt that feeling of condemnation that you carry around with you, that is not what it will be like to be in the presence of God's glory. 
When you're there, there will be no weight of guilt, no shame for your inadequacies, no regret for your failure and weakness and sin, no fear of being exposed for who you really are. Why? Because God is able to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. On that day, you will see the Almighty, the one who made Isaiah and Ezekiel and Peter freak out, and you will have great joy. Not because He's lowered His standards, not because it's now safe for sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God, not because He's redefined right and wrong so that your failures and sins are no longer failures and sins, but because you will finally be made holy. That word blameless has the sense of being acceptable. In the temple worship of the Old Testament, only spotless animals could be offered to the Lord. It had to be without blemish. And that's what we'll be. Using the language of Hebrews 12, we will be the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Friends, this is the great benefit of Christ's work for us. God is able to present us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy because of what the Lord Jesus did for us. See, God didn't just wave a magic wand and make your sin go away. Instead, He has paid the price to have it removed from you. God sent His Son to take on human flesh. The Lord Jesus, God's Son, lived a life of perfect obedience while here on earth. Jesus, the only perfectly righteous human being, the only human being who could stand in the presence of God's glory with great joy on his own. But in his great love, Jesus gave up his life for us on the cross. He died on the cross as a sacrifice, as a substitute, taking the penalty for our sin. And he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And now we, as his people, have participated in what Martin Luther called the great exchange. The the theological term is double imputation. Something gets imputed, something gets credited to Jesus. And something gets imputed or, or credited to us as his people. All of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame and failure and inadequacy... All of it was credited to Jesus as he died on the cross. He paid the penalty. He suffered the judgment of God against those sins. And in return, we get the spotless, blameless, perfect righteousness of Christ credited to us. Luther didn't make up this idea. It's in the Bible. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake... He, that is God the Father, made Him, that is Jesus, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus became sin for us. And now in Him, we are the righteousness of God. In Jude's words, we are presented blameless before the presence of His glory on that last day. This is why in verse 25, Jesus says that this is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's no other way to be made blameless. Now, you might ask then, okay, how do I make that happen? I want that. 
Well, it turns out you don't make it happen. It comes to you not as a, a religious checklist, not as a to-do list for you, but it comes to you, this, this great exchange where Christ takes your sin and you get His spotless righteousness. It comes to you only as a gift. Christianity doesn't offer you a list of do's and don'ts that give you a key to being right with God. That's man-made religion. It turns out it's a waste of time. If you read the Bible, it turns out God actually hates that. All of your best deeds, all of your most devoted acts of religious piety have no power to cleanse you from your sins. You're you're simply washing your hands with mud. It's never going to work. But friends, the good news is that this salvation requires of you exactly what you're able to offer. And that is nothing. Jesus wants to give you His righteousness as a gift. Friend, if you will turn from your sin, if you'll acknowledge your guilt, if you'll put your trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven, cleansed, made blameless in the eyes of God. Can't just imagine what that will be like. If you're not a follower of Jesus, friend, let me urge you, turn from your sin and trust in Him. When you stand before a holy God on that final day, the God who made Isaiah and Ezekiel and Peter completely freak out, you're not going to be able to plead any acts of religious devotion. You're not going to be able to plead any good deeds or good intentions. Nothing you can do can fix this problem. And so give up trying to fix it and put your trust in Jesus. For those of us who are Christians, who have received this amazing gift of righteousness, brothers and sisters, can you see how wonderful our salvation is? God is able, through Christ, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. You're going to be there on that final day if you are in Christ not weighed down by guilt and shame and sin, not with regret and sorrow and fear, but Jude says, with great joy. And let me suggest that that means we can actually live now, today, free from guilt and condemnation. In the book of Romans, Paul tells us that for those who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. If God Himself doesn't condemn you, but rather forgives you, if Jesus bled and died so that your failures and sins could be wiped away, then they don't stand against you now. And they certainly won't stand against you on that final day. And so practice living out that heavenly reality now. Living as one who's been made blameless in the sight of God by the love of Christ. Inject that heavenly reality into your Monday morning. By embracing freedom from guilt and condemnation. Again, not because you're so great, but because Jesus is so amazing that He's removed all of your shame. And that leads us to Jude's application of this little theology lesson. What is it that we should do in light of God's ability? His ability to keep us from stumbling and His ability to present us before His glory with great joy. Well, In a sense, again, nothing. Notice there are no commands. There are no imperatives here. 
Instead, all we have is Jude's example. He praises God. He, he ends his little letter with a, a word of doxology, right? an expression of praise. Right? I think this is, in, in the end, the final application of any theology we ever learn. Praise to the only God for who He is and for what He's done for us as our Savior. Look at the words Jude uses there in verse 25. To Him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Glory to God. That is glory in that first sense that we thought about earlier. Praise and honor to His name. Jude says majesty, his, his greatness over all. Dominion, the, the arena in which his reign is expressed. It's, it's utterly limitless. Authority, he, he rules over all that he has made. To be clear, Jude isn't suggesting that we give these things to God. He already has them. He's not in any way dependent on us for glory, majesty, dominion, or authority. No, instead, Jude's inviting us here to join him in bringing our thoughts and our affections and our love in line with the reality of who God is. Jude's inviting us here to respond to God's character and the truth of his salvation. That's why at my my church, Sterling Park Baptist Church back in Virginia, we, we usually end our Sunday morning gatherings with these very words. Not because we're looking around for something that sounds like kind of religious to end the service so that people know, okay, now it's time to stand up and and leave. Rather because whatever it is that we've considered about God, whatever it is that we've considered about his character in that service, the, the normal, proper response of God's people is to praise him. Whenever we're looking at the scriptures, whether we're looking at God's justice, his mercy, his patience, his wrath, whatever it is, the end result ought to be praise in our hearts to him. When you hear something about God, you can tell if you've understood it or not. If you've understood, you'll, you'll say in your heart some version of what Jude writes here in verse 25. To Him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. What an amazing God we have. That's why Jude zooms out there in verse 25. He says, God deserves all this praise before all time. That's to say, friends, God has always been this glorious. This is nothing new. Eternity past is filled with the glory and the praises of our God. And Jude says, now. That's where we come in. This is why Hinson gathers on Sunday mornings. This is why we're here. According to Hebrews 12, when we come to worship together in the church, we are spiritually joining in the worship that's already going on with innumerable angels in festal gathering that's taking place in heaven right now. And Jude says, and forevermore. This is the business of the universe for the rest of time. God's glory extends into eternity future and his praises will never be extinguished. And here's what I've noticed. As people grow in Christ, they, they seem to be more and more consumed, more and more captivated, more and more of their bandwidth is occupied by the glory of God. What I've noticed is that as people grow in Christ, difficult situations in their lives become fodder for God's glory. Instead of throwing a temper tantrum that this isn't going the way I want it to go, uh, we, we learn to say, Lord, this is difficult. But I know you're good and you are worthy of glory. So help me to honor you and bring you glory in this trial. 
Seasons of blessing become opportunities to praise God for his kindness. When something goes right, I don't, I don't praise my own cleverness or my own industry and hard work, but rather I see the Lord's kindness to me. We learn to pray, Lord, help me to receive these gifts from you in a way that brings you honor because you're the one worthy of all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. So brothers and sisters, as we head back out into the world this week, let Jude's little word of doxology here focus you because you were made for worship. It might not feel like it all the time, but it is true. You have only the choice between the worship of God and the worship of worthless idols. Whatever it is that's giving you hope and meaning in your life, whatever it is that you're putting trust in, whatever gets you out of bed in the morning, whatever thrills your soul most, whatever it is that you can't live without, that, that thing or those things have the worship of your heart. Each and every human being is on a quest to find something that can bear the weight of their worship. I don't even have to know you to know that's true of you. Your day today will be ruled by the worship of your heart. You will go home after church, maybe have some lunch, perhaps spend some time with family and friends. Maybe you'll watch a basketball game, take a walk, take a nap, take a hike, whatever it is that you do. Tomorrow you'll get up, you'll head off to whatever it is that you spend your time doing. And you will either do all of those things in the hopes that they might just be enough to make you happy and sustain you and get you through the day. So you'll invest your, your worship in those things and in those people. And if you do, you will find that when things go wrong and people let you down and you mess up, well, you'll find that you're going to feel like you've lost everything. And anger and despair and frustration and depression will begin to set in. Or you can do all of those things with the conviction that God is worthy of all your praise and honor. And so you'll do everything with gratitude for His glory. And in so doing, you'll find them joyful. And when things go wrong, you'll be okay because you know God hasn't gone wrong. Oh, church, this is such good news for us. God is able to keep you from stumbling. He can present us blameless. Blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. And so we have someone worthy. Worthy of the worship of our hearts. Worthy of all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Let's praise the Lord together in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, our hearts are filled with worship. That you would welcome sinners like us into the presence of your glory. That you would send your Son to satisfy justice on our behalf. That the Lord Jesus would bleed and die for our sins. Father, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us each hearts that treasure the truth of your glory and your gospel more than any other. Would you help us to love and live now with worship and with great joy as we look forward to that future day when we will stand in your presence as a cleansed and redeemed people. We love you and we praise you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.